But the, on, on, on a totally serious and very sad note, of course, this is uh, a final chance to see uh, Lance Reddick. He is one of the characters, you know, in the John Wick films and, you know, died recently at the age of, of 60. And we initially knew him, uh, you know, as, as TV watchers and moviegoers through things like The Wire, where he played uh, Lieutenant uh, Cedric Daniels in, in The Wire. And so here in, in this John Wick series, he's the hotel concierge of Sharon. And, and you know, uh, how can that not affect you as you watch the films, even though the film is so silly and away and this and that you know when you see him the scenes that he's in i mean it is melancholic you realize that this actor had, had just died and uh, all the more reason to be sad of course is you know the wire was so baltimore and so was lance reddick hello and welcome to at the movies with mike and marie a show where two film professors talk about movies i'm marie westhaver and i'm mike giuliano and today we're going to talk about john wick chapter four and inside starting with the latest john wick movie I just saw this yesterday, Mike, so this is fresh in my mind. But where do you want to start with this movie? Well, let's start with the title. <laughs> um, <laughs> John Wick, Chapter 4. This movie has a running time of two hours and 49 minutes. It's a very long chapter. I think this film is like just shamelessly overlong. I think, you know, think about the basic formula here. You have Keanu Reeves playing a killer. He's played this role in the previous chapters. He's still on the run. He's still running and fighting, if you will. And what happens here is that the film itself becomes what I call endless chases and fights. Some of them involve gunfire. Some of them involve martial arts. Some of them involve old-fashioned fistfights. Some of them involve all of the above. And individual fights, if you will, work extremely well on screen. Uh, the director of, of the, the series, really, Chad uh, Shahalik, uh, uh, what's it, St Stahelski, uh, I'll get his name yet, uh, Chad Stahelski, um, he uh, is a veteran of uh, stunt work, and he's actually doubled for this actor before. And the reason I mention that is he's really good with what I call bodies in motion. This is a case where, you know, whether it's slow motion or fast motion or just regular motion, he keeps the bodies moving. And and and, uh, and that's really, you know, quite an accomplishment sometimes. So I'll mention one sequence in particular that I thought worked really well. Much of it takes place in Paris, and there's a really long staircase leading up to Sacré-Cœur. And there, there's all kinds of mayhem along the staircase as, as he's bumping off one person after another. Now, on a realistic level, throughout the movie, where I found myself saying, oh, brother, was the fact that the Keanu Reeves character has remarkably good aim. When he fires a gun at you, he's going to get you. Dozens of bad guys have remarkably bad aim. When they aim at him, they keep missing. Or even if they hit him, it doesn't seem to hurt him that much. He gets shot here and there. He falls up from you know upper stories and, and he stands up and walks away. He's not a superhero, but gee, not even a Band-Aid or something. You know, he, re he really gets through this remarkably well. And so anyway, the sequence I'll mention is that, you know, it's a really long fight sequence. And I kept thinking of, you know, directors like John Woo, Hong Kong action films, how it's so absurdly over the top that you got to enjoy it just watching it at a kind of visceral level. But here's the problem. A sequence like that works extremely well and it can go on for however many minutes and I'm with it. But then when you have that strung together with any number of other somewhat similar sequences, it's at the level of, okay, the killing is, is enjoyable to watch, to put it crudely, but the overkill, and this is what I call cinematic overkill. There's just too much of it and going on too, too long. Well, I've gone on too long too. What do you think? I want to pile on with what you said about that scene that they shot of the steps in Montmartre. And first of all, any anytime you set a movie in Paris, I am so there because I love seeing scenes of Paris. And I thought they did a couple things that were very clever. One was that scene because he has to get to the top by dawn, you know, on time to participate in the duel. 
So you see this long staircase and you think, oh, wow, that's going to be really hard to get up it. And then, of course, it's, you know, there's assassins, you know, waiting their turn to pick them off. And he picks all of them off. And then he gets almost all the way to the top. And then somebody <laughs> hits him and he goes all the way down that staircase and they film the whole thing. And, you know, you're rooting for John Wick, of course, but I could not keep from laughing at the incredible bad luck because now dude you're all it's like shoots and ladders you know what i mean you know what it is it's not just shoots and ladders it's the myth of sisyphus you know it's it's just like you almost get to the top of the stairs you like he's not pushing a boulder almost to the top and then oh what bad luck the poor guy he tumbles all the way down i gotta start up the staircase again (laughs) but we know john wick can do it we know he he can yeah and and what you said times a million in terms of you know honestly if you were in one of these fights and somebody hit you in the head with with two by four you're going down and you're staying down but john wick is like the terminator nothing seems to he just dusts himself off not even like a ow just sort of he's unstoppable but in terms of action this movie has it all it is so exciting to watch there's another scene that i liked even better than the steps of montmartre which was filmed around, I guess, the actual Arc de Triomphe, which has a roundabout around it, which is you have to be like a precision front driver just to get through that and regular traffic. It's it's really daunting. And of course, they enter it going the opposite direction, top speed. It's just incredibly crazy. This film makes really good use of its locations, and it has a lot of locations. It's one of those movies that bounces around the planet. You're in New York, you're in Egypt, you're in Japan, you're in Paris. But to its credit, when it's there, it's really there. Like in Paris, Marie loves Paris. Who doesn't love Paris, right? There was just an article about how it still is the top tourist destination in the world, right? So we're among the millions who love it. So the thing is, though, when it makes use of whether it's Montmartre, Sacre-Cœur, even the Eiffel Tower pops up occasionally, all these monuments and all these neighborhoods actually are quite plausible within the film. But where it's like incredibly implausible is the scene that Marie just mentioned, the Arc de Triomphe. And it's really well framed in the shot, I agree. But watch that sequence. And one reason you have to laugh at it is as all this mayhem is going on, all these chases and all this gunplay around it, it's like somehow all of the tourists, all the pedestrians, all the normal people somehow even aren't there. It's like it's become a staging ground for the for the big fight or the big chase. And, and you realize at that point, the stage management has gone to such a degree that it's just as unrealistic as John Wick going down, but but then bouncing back up again. Because I, I love there's almost a merry-ground. It almost, it, I'll say a merry-go-round effect to that Arctic Triumph. Think of the monument, the center, and the cars are all going around it. And I'm thinking this is like a, like a theme park ride almost. <laughs> and so normal life life, regular Parisian life is gone. And, and I'm not saying that as a complaint right here, because the movie already is so unrealistic in a basic way that you might as well just enjoy the ride at that point, you know, and not, and not quibble and say, well, where are the millions of tourists who should be hit by these cars? No, they, they've, they're watching the movie. They're not in the movie. Yeah, I think you're right about that. Just the, uh, I don't even know how they filmed that. Well, I mean, there must have been some stunt drivers because I did pick up a note here that Keanu Reeves spent 12 weeks studying martial arts and stunt driving so he could do some of his own stunts. And I will say he looks really good in terms of seeming very comfortable with the weaponry he's holding. He looks very uh, believable in the martial arts sections. And there's another really cool element we haven't mentioned yet is the firepower. He has some sort of gun that can go through a wall kill somebody on the other side and set them on fire. And then they give you this aerial shot where you're watching him move through an area using this amazing gun. 
not only that, Marie, but it has like endless rounds of ammunition. Mm-hmm. I, these sequences going on. And I, 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 you know, sometimes with a movie like this, I'll try to do what I call a body count. Sometimes just out of boredom, like how many bad guys does he knock off? I can't count that high. I didn't even try it at a certain <laughs> point because somebody go down. But again, at that level of like how many rounds of ammo before you have to reload, he just keeps firing away with it. But in terms of Keanu Reeves, in writing about this film and just assessing his career at this point, a number of people have described him as essentially aging with grace, that, that he's in great shape. He looks really good. He's, he's had a long and durable career and he's really in peak form here, isn't he? He's really very good in in the film. And he's uh, got a persona here, the John Wick persona, that essentially is Clint Eastwood. He's got that laconic identity, the line readings, not too much, very few words, actually. One reason he probably took the role is, yes, he could train for all the karate chops and all the the fast driving. Didn't have to worry about dialogue too much. He goes for long scenes without any dialogue at all, or he has dialogue, but it's done in the sort of Clint Eastwood slash John Wayne way of you have a word and then you can count to 10 and then you have the next word. And, and he just really, really draws it out that way. And he knows what he's doing with this. And, and uh, again, you're, you're watching him as an action hero. And I think that actually works to the advantage of the film. If they tried explaining more in terms of why all this murder and mayhem is going on, it, it's sort of there in terms of his former employer who's like really ticked off at him. And, you know, this this uh, uh, high table kind of kind of uh, nonsense and the storyline, you know, of who he used to work for and how they're after him. You just can't worry over that because the film doesn't particularly. It just presents it. And again, that's where it's almost like a Hong Kong action film, where if you're looking for rhyme or reason or logic or anything like that, the laws of physics, you're looking in the wrong place. This film just has its own agenda and you just go along with it if you're going to go along with it. But bear in mind, you'll be going along with it for almost three hours. So you got to be set that way. So make sure the babysitter's being well paid and, you know, <laughs> and you've got and, and you, the insurance is paid for at your house and everything is all lined up so you can go off to the movies for a few hours. <laughs> it is a long movie, but it is there is never a moment where the action flags. It is nonstop action. I want to mention the number of kills because when I put it on Facebook, I was going to go see the movie. One of my friends said, don't tell us the body count of uh, how many people he kills. And then later I said, all of them, because I didn't even bother counting. But yes, he, he kills everybody that he is in his way. The other thing I wanted to mention is the iconic fashion that the John Wick look has. He has set himself up. Keanu Reeves for, you know, Keanu Reeves for Armani. This iconic suit that he wears in this movie is made out of Kevlar. Is that not genius? Well, it is a fashion magazine spread, and and that, mm-hmm. that's the way. And the film actually presents it that way with the, how the character moves and how he's framed in the action. Again, they know what they're doing here, and so at a kind of visceral and visual level, it really holds your attention. So, so you know, and you're in Paris. How can you not be fashionable? <laughs> yeah, you all you almost have to be. Yeah, even down to the shoes, they even make sure that you see a scene where he steps on someone. So you even get a sense of, you know, his footwear. It is very, very deliberate pacing and action and, and shots. You're right. They know what they're doing. So this is John Wick Chapter 4. There's apparently a spinoff coming, the ballerina character from a previous John Wick movie. What do you think about that branching off sort of thing, Mike? Do you like that when that happens or does it seem shameless? Well, of course, it's shameless. <laughs> um, but, you know, there are possibilities for for um, spinoffs here for some characters and sad to say not not for others. And in terms of the supporting cast, we should talk about some of the other uh, characters in it, the actors, namely. Uh, Lawrence Fishburne is in the film and, and he's a very reliable actor and he's quite good at what he does. Bill Skarsgård plays a, a villain here. And where I had to laugh because it's uh, shameless in its own way is 
he's like one of these ultra villains, right? And and the sure sign that he's real Euro trash villainry is the fact that he loves classical music. If you have a, you have a villain like that sitting around, you know, he's living the swank life and swank death and so on. Uh, but he always will have classical music playing because I don't know. There's something if, if you're going to want to talk about like you know degradation and, and just corruption and just you know all all around you know badness. Yeah, he's going to like classical music. I'm not sure what that says about classical music, but it's a trope in movies like this that the moment you hear that music, it's like uh oh, he's going to kill somebody next so i never really thought of like you know mozart and beethoven that way but but somehow that that, that behavior is engendered by classical music <laughs> i'll leave it go with that but the, on, on a totally serious and very sad note of course this is uh, a final chance to see uh, lance reddick he is one of the characters you know in the john wick films and you know died recently at the age of, of 60 and we initially knew him uh, you know as, as tv watchers and moviegoers through things like the wire where he played uh, lieutenant uh, Cedric Daniels in, in The Wire. And so here in, in this John Wick series, he's the hotel concierge, Sharon. And, and you know, uh, how can that not affect you as you watch the films? Even though the film is so silly and toss away and this and that, you know, when you see him, the scenes that he's in, I mean, it is melancholic. You realize that this actor had, had just died. And uh, all the more reason to be sad, of course, is, you know, The Wire was so Baltimore and so was Lance Reddick. He was a Baltimore native. He was a, a graduate of Friends School in, in North Baltimore. He had that strong local connection. And then having bounced around in various ways. He sort of found himself as an actor when he was eventually going to the Yale Drama School. And then, you know, again, when, when a, a career is cut short or relatively short like that, it just permeates the film as you watch it. So, so uh, again, that's why watching this film is totally unintended, of course, but as I'm watching it, I'm not having as much fun as I thought I might, because when I see him on screen, how can I not be sad at that? How about you? Oh, I loved Lance Reddick, and I'd forgotten that he was in this. So it was a nice surprise to get him back you know, for one more, for one more role, loved him in The Wire, but also in um, a TV show called Fringe, which I started binge watching with a friend of mine because she's really into sci-fi films. And, you know, that also was like, oh, look, it's, it's Lance Reddick. You know, there's, there's still some stuff we can watch with him in it. A really, really talented actor. And it's a tragedy that he's gone. Uh, the other person I want to mention from the movie that I really like seeing is Ian McShane. He's done so much TV work. I mean, I, he was really outstanding in Deadwood, that HBO series. And also, uh, I think the first time I knew about him was many, many years ago, decades even, on a um, masterpiece theater show called Lovejoy, where he plays a guy who is, you know, runs a antique shop. And so he's always trying to find out the provenance of something somebody's brought in and all the little stories that come out of that. But he's such a solid actor, and it was great to see him in this. You know, even though his role is obviously not as important as Keanu Reeves, the star, but just having good supporting actors, I think is really important, especially for a movie like this that is so action driven. It helps the film. And moreover, doubling back on one of your earlier points, if there are to be sequels, spinoffs, however you want to call them, you have a strong supporting cast here. So you could imagine a story like this going off in, in various directions. And I will give this movie high marks for, you know, explosions imagery of stuff I never knew where it's even possible with guns. Like I said, that they can blast through doors and set people on fire on the other side, which is very cinematic, especially that aerial shot, Mike. We should have a rating system for this, right? In terms of <laughs> explosions and gun, gun play. <laughs> How many stars do you give the explosions? <laughs> I think everybody going into a John Wick movie knows what they're getting. And I think this delivers what people are expecting, which is nonstop action, really cool weaponry and fantastically choreographed scenes. 
And Keanu that, Reeves looking good in a suit. Exactly. We know what we're in for here. And if, you, if you're not in for that, then you don't go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but everybody else going because they know what to expect. You're going to love this movie. And this has got to win some awards in terms of technical awards, because some of those scenes, I had it, do you even know how they shot that stuff? No, I don't. And I'm actually in some ways happier not knowing because I'm still mm-hmm. a kid at heart. Like it, th- there's something magical about it almost. And I, you could read an article maybe about technically how they did it. But, you know, I almost would rather not know that. Just uh, I want to be wowed by it. Well, that brings us to our second film, which is called Inside. And it stars William Defoe as an arc thief who ends up getting locked into the penthouse where, where he's trying to steal some art. And then the rest of the movie is about him trying to escape. And like, I absolutely loved this movie. How about you? Um, I initially loved it. And then I liked it less and less as it went on. Oh, well, uh, what, what, what did it for you? Okay. The premise is quite intriguing. First of all, Willem Dafoe has played an artist before. Think about mm-hmm. him as Vincent van Gogh and at Eternity's Gate in 2018. A few other movies where he's played an artist. And he's ideally cast here. I mean, he's it's really strong casting. And what I liked initially was just that premise. He's this highly skilled art thief. And he's been dropped into this, you know, elaborate uh, penthouse with a fabulous contemporary art collection. And essentially, he's the, Egon Schiele is the artist in particular that he wants to steal. But there's all kinds of contemporary art by, by actual contemporary contemporary artists. I mean, people in the art world would recognize some of the, some of the imagery. And so he's, you know, supposed to like make the heist, get out of there. And then things almost immediately go wrong. And I, I still really like the film at this point. So what goes wrong is, you know, the, the film's clear about this. that something gets tripped or triggered. Now he's locked into the apartment. He can't get out of it. What's he going to do? So I liked it to that point, and I didn't like it from then on. Here's why. He's been trapped in this wealthy man's apartment, and evidently there's absolutely no way out. Uh, There's a lot of glass walls and so on, but apparently they're all bulletproof or something. Like, they can't be shattered. He can't open doors or whatever from the inside. Okay, to some extent I can buy that. And then I start to think, oh, come on, there must be some way out of here. And and yet, no, 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 for the sake of the story, he can't get out. He's trapped there. That, That bothered me. The second thing that bothered me is, Locked in like that, he does have access to like video surveillance cameras. So he can see that there's a security guard down at the front desk and he can see various other cameras around the the, the building. It's a real high tech building. Somehow they don't have any awareness of him, even though as he's being trapped there and various things he does and that are done to him, the fact that alarms go off. And somehow nobody hears them, like at the front desk doesn't trip or trigger anything. This highly pitched alarm is sounding, but someone, no one else in the building notices it somehow. Secondly, there's something that happens that, again, I'm not going to spoil all details, but the sprinkler system is, is tripped. And so the apartment is not just flooded, but there's several inches of water on the floor by the time all is said and done. He's in a pool, basically. Somehow that doesn't like leak through any ceilings or walls or anything. And moreover, and this is a true miracle, like they cut to a scene not long after that where suddenly the floor is dry again, or at least doesn't have standing water. Where'd all that water go? (laughs) Um, So there's some logical problems with it that way. And that really hurts the film because you need a kind of airtight logic, I think, if you're going to like really have a procedural like this, if you were locked in, what would happen to you? What would you do? The third and, and ultimate reason why I really didn't like it as it went along is Willem Dafoe is terrific in the role. I, I'm not faulting him as an actor, but the problem is that very thing. What happens because he's alone for, for the, the duration of a feature length film, the actor starts to vamp. It's partly a matter of what the actor's doing. It's partly what the script gives him. And after all, it's, after a while, it starts to seem like what I call acting exercises. And he says some really ridiculous things. And I think maybe he's losing it. You know, the character's losing it. He's going to say this or that. And then where it really gets so over the top, uh, unlikely and just heavy handed, near the end of the film, he actually discovers one of the rare uh, original copies of William Blake's 
the marriage of heaven and hell. And he starts to read it. And we got close-ups. We're meant to linger on this. I think, oh, brother, now we're heading to some sort of metaphysical realm. And, and, and at that point, the, the film is just like, it's just tossing everything our way. It's just loony at that point. And maybe the character's gone loony, but I think the film itself has at that point. There's a kind of desperation to it. Now, almost as if there's some metaphysical finale we're meant, we're meant to dwell on. And so really, that's why I said I initially liked the film a lot. And then scene by scene, it lost me. And I really didn't care for it by the end. Well, let me ask you about the artiness of it, because first of all, this is the coolest penthouse ever. When you think about having a really neat penthouse with modern furniture and original artwork, this is the place you're thinking of. I thought there were scenes that were so beautifully shot. You could do a screen capture at almost any point and hang that on the wall. I mean, just absolutely beautiful individual scenes that felt like you were looking at art, which I thought was sort of a neat metaphor to slip in there. You know, it's it's artistic. It's about art. It's about art thieves. It's about art appreciation. And it's very artistically shot. Loved that. It is. It is. And one reason to watch it is to re- watch the uh, read the end credits, because it really has direct allusions to a number of well-known contemporary artists. And so it's a really swank apartment in that sense and realistic in that sense in terms of the artwork on the wall. Secondly, where, where it is amusing and very clever, actually, is how do you live when you live in a place like this? All the millions you spend for the artwork. And then what goes into your refrigerator? Well, when he's scrounging for food, he's surviving on caviar, uh, truffle sauce and, and, and some high end liquor. So, so you know, <laughs> if, you, if you want like a basic meat and potatoes meal, you're not going to get it here. Uh, it's, it's high end appetizers in a lot of ways and a lot of booze. And, and sometimes in, in terms of the detail, the film is really quite enjoyable as in, well, what would this guy have in in his apartment? Because now, essentially, you know, if you're trapped like that, you really start to run out of food and drink and this and that. And and the film actually has some scenes that are really effective in conveying that, you know, in the lap of luxury, some things, you you might almost wish for less luxury. If you were in a working class apartment, they'd have some real food in the cupboard, right? (laughs) Well, the, the guy who owns the place is apparently out of town, so he's turned off the water and that's why there's no food. But the electricity is still on, but the, but the water's been cut off. And there's scenes where that's really compellingly portrayed within the film. He's gone, I think it's Kazakhstan or something. He's one of these high-flying billionaires, whatever. And, and this is the case where people keep apartments in New York that they may only use once or twice a year. And otherwise, it just stays locked up. So that's totally plausible that the guy's gone away and might not be back for weeks. Yes, might be a very, very long time. And there's a great scene where <laughs> if you leave the refrigerator door open for more than 20 seconds, it starts playing the Macarena. And then there's a scene where William Defoe has the freezer door open and he's just looking for shards of ice, just anything. He's just so parched. He's so thirsty. He's actually and- licking the sides of the refrigerator, <laughs> of the freezer. I mean, that, that scene I liked a lot. The desperation to be licking the walls of the, of the freezer, trying to get any droplets of anything, water. Anything. And of course, the Macarena is blaring. And at this point, he doesn't care. I think he is losing his mind. And I think that that gradual sinking into madness is very well done. I mean, he's he's really good at that kind of role anyway. But I did not have the same problem you did with the... Um, how come nobody else can hear the the alarm? How come they don't have surveillance on him? Because I I kind of read it as sort of a panic room thing, that that was why those, whatever it was that he tripped, you know, then you're in that situation where you have to try to get out of a, a, a locked room and it's meant to keep you in and it's meant to be impenetrable. So I thought I thought it was a panic room kind of situation. Yeah, but even within a panic room, if the room floods in one scene, where does all the water go in the next scene? That is a very good question, which, of course, they don't get to. Maybe the guy who lives under him is also out of town. 
But at some point, water tends to run downhill. So one of them up in the lobby and won't that security guard finally notice something's wrong up in apartment, whatever number, way up at the top of the building. It's way up there. And the other thing I thought was really effective and beautiful is the scenes, you know, where he can see out, you know, at the beautiful skyline and these huge, tall windows interspersed with, you know, wall that looks sort of like a prison. So it's like this incredibly beautiful prison. And he can see where he wants to be, but he can't get there. Well, you know what? It's the it's the gilded cage, isn't it? But one thing that's really also frustrating with the film, he's also something of an artist, this art thief. And he starts doing artwork of his own, just out of boredom and desperation, whatever. And he, he tends to do it on the interior walls. I thought, why doesn't he just like make big letters that say help and put them on 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 the on that big plate glass window looking out? Because there are enough like helicopters and whatever else going by, other tall buildings. Somebody surely would look across and see these big letters saying help in the window, don't you think? Except I don't think he wants to be rescued. He wants to escape because he's committed he's you know he's be caught in the yeah he does he does but but suddenly like like his phone's been cut off he can't reach his his cohorts to have them come and rescue him but at a certain point if you're facing starvation and everything else you just want to get out of there so i know what you're saying he doesn't want to have like the police see the help sign but maybe somebody who could get him out of there because after all his his escape plan he tries going up through a skylight but Mm -hmm. if you go up through a skylight if you're really way up on the roof that's isn't that the same thing as a help sign somebody's going to see you up on the rooftop and it could be a police helicopter or just a, a commercial plane or something you know marie at that point you know he's exposed on the roof wouldn't he? if he if he manages to get up there let's put it that way would that be any different than putting help in the window i don't know i mean i guess we don't know what his plan was after that bring up a bunch of sheets and make a rope out of sheets and rappel down the side of the building <laughs> but what's the plan in a lot of movies he would do that for sure <laughs> and, then, and then he'd just drop to the sidewalk and just brush himself off and head on to the next film, you know, a sequel to this. You know, this is a case where, again, the character is not well enough defined, actually, in terms of background and motivation and so on. He- for sure, but you never really had enough sense of him when he was sane, do you? I mean, he's, he's almost, a, I don't want to say a cipher as a character, but a sort of quasi-cipher. Mm-hmm. I did think this was a brave role because he, Willem Dafoe, is, is carrying the whole movie. I mean, there are a couple of other characters, but they are not, I mean, he, I think he's in every single scene. Yeah. He must have taken it thinking this is going to be a tour de force acting opportunity. This is, I think, clearly pitched to I am going for a best actor statuette because he does. He, he pulls out all the stops. He does. I mean, he keeps eating the scenery. In this case, like multi-million dollar paintings, he should just like eat his way through the drywall and escape that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I also kept thinking the more things that he tried, the more things that destroyed the place. I just kept thinking, yeah, the guy, when he comes home, he's never going to forgive you for this. I, I want, I, yeah, Maria, I want a sequel only for this reason. The guy returns home from a long trip to <laughs> Kazakhstan. Can you imagine opening the apartment door? The look on his face would be priceless. It would. That <laughs> would have been, been a great not only end, didn't end credit scene. Clean, not only didn't the cleaning lady do her job, but somebody really trashed the place. And, and all my caviar's gone. Who ate all the caviar? Yeah, and that that is a question. Like, is there nobody who's scheduled to come clean it from time to time? There you go. There you go. See, logical objections. I mean, it doesn't fully account for things like there is a cleaning lady in the building. And I love the scene where she's like in a stairwell and he sees her on a surveillance camera and she's got the vacuum cleaner on and she's been smoking and she vacuums up the smoke. <laughs> so she, so her smoke is not detected. I mean, I love that that kind of eavesdropping voyeuristic quality to it. But just as there are all those cameras there, that's again why it's such a high tech building. Somebody should have noticed. I know you say panic room. They should have noticed something's wrong in the panic room. Yeah, you would think that when you're out of town, 
and you can't watch to see if, you know, maybe it's not an art thief in your house, but maybe a pipe breaks. You would think that there would be some sort of way to, you know, for somebody to get in in case of an emergency. But that's not this movie. I do think it really would have been very funny if at the end of all the credits, they had a final scene where the guy comes back and all you see is his reaction to, you know, his, what happened? To no, even fun, even funnier, if you don't see his reaction, just see like the door opens and then <laughs> the point of view is somebody in the hallway looking into the room and then cut right there. Right there. We that imagine been, his reaction. That would have been hilarious. But they didn't do that. Maybe Maybe in the director's cut. And that brings us to the end of our show. But don't forget to check out our other podcasts at atnhcc.podbean.com. And we'll see you next time at the movies. See you then. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.